Right, good morning. Is it warm enough for everybody this morning? Well, thank you for being here and just coming together. We come together because there are many other things we could be doing, aren't there? We could be at the beach right now, which is a very pleasant option. But we're here because we know how important it is to learn from God's Word, to give Him the honor, and to really put King Jesus first above any of our own personal and comfortable considerations, really, isn't it? As you can see there, we're in part 54 of Acts. If you're a little bit behind, you've got some catching up to do. And last week we had a great deep teaching from Neil on, on baptism and the true baptism, and the fact that there's only one baptism. And I really hope that if you had questions, you've asked them of someone and really got convicted about that. And this week we'll pick up in verse 8. And part of what we'll see this morning is that on this journey that we walk, and the journey even that Paul walked, is not all smooth sailing. It's not smooth sailing for those proclaiming the word, or sometimes for those receiving the word. And we'll carry on in Acts 19, we'll pick up in verse 8. But before we go into that, let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you just because we are in awe of who you are. We are in awe of all that you do and all that you are in our lives. We, we want to honor you, we want to praise you, we want to put you in your rightful place on the throne, in the first place, in the first position in our lives. We want to honor you through what we learn through your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be the one speaking, inspiring, moving both in me and in the hearts of all here this morning. That we will be changed, transformed, moved and challenged. But most of all, we will receive that incredible hope that we have when we truly see you, King Jesus, for who you are. It's an incredible hope for, for change for ourselves and change for the world that we live in. The world we live in looks bleak, but, but you are the ultimate hope. And I pray that as, as we listen to your word this morning, yes, we'll be challenged, but ultimately we'll leave you feeling more hopeful and joyful that we can honor you as king. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Let's jump right into it. You're going to have to follow in your Bibles. It's not up on the screen this morning. It's good to practice that from time to time. Acts 19 verses 8. Let's read verses 8 to 10. Just a little interlude between what Neil spoke about last week and and the main body of what we'll look at this morning, it says, beginning about Paul here, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now after what happened last week, surprise, surprise, Paul goes and what does he do? He finds a synagogue and he starts preaching. That shouldn't come as any surprise anymore, should it? It kind of was his pattern. And we won't spend too much on, on this part, but look at what's happening here. Paul's reasoning and persuading. He's not just preaching, he's reasoning with people and he's persuading them, kind of helping them to change their worldview and, and see Jesus for who he is. I remember here, Paul is kind of at the height of his, his career as a preacher, if you want to say. It's like he's in his full measure of his powers. His confidence is high. He's, he's really just one of the premier preachers of the world. He's confident in his message and his ability to deliver it and his ability to persuade, boldly speak the message and convince others of that. But see what happens here. Some start making wicked allegations. It says they're speaking evil of the way. 
the way referred to as Christianity, the teachings about Jesus, he chooses not to get into arguments with these people. Now you might ask, why doesn't he just get into an argument and into a debate with these people? Because he was persuading and convincing and doing all of these things. He just moved on, said, I'm leaving where those people are and moving on to somewhere else, a Gentile location and none, no less, the Hall of Tyrannus. Two points I want to make here, two quick points before we move on. When we share God's word, often we can sense when someone has no real interest in hearing the truth and in changing their worldview. Where they, all they're interested in is some kind of public argument to try and pick holes in the truth. They're there for controversy and not for learning. And it takes a little bit of discernment on our part to find out when those people are engaging with us. People are picking a fight, if you'd like. Paul didn't waste time with those people. Now, this might sound a little bit controversial. I'm saying we try and help everyone, but you get to a point where you sometimes see that someone is just being contrary because they want to try and pick holes in your argument. They want to tear down the truth and they want to mock King Jesus. When you do encounter that, it might be wiser to do it as Paul did. Just move away and speak to a group of people who truly care about changing their worldviews. Now I'm saying never give up on people. Pray for that person. But don't engage in public arguments that just cast a poor light on King Jesus. Pick your battles wisely is what I'm saying there. Paul didn't see any value in that. And Paul was a highly knowledgeable guy. He was a charismatic preacher. He could have engaged with him, but he chose a lesson and not to. Don't get drawn into arguments with those who have no real interest in changing their worldview. Now, Paul doesn't decide, look, in this place, it's getting controversial. People are pulling down Jesus, so we should just walk away, stop preaching in Ephesus, and move on to the next place. He doesn't decide that. Okay, The Word of God will be preached. His name will be made known and we will reach those people who truly want to change their worldviews. He didn't stop doing it just to protect our reputation. He was interested in those who truly wanted to hear God's message. Now, again, I want to emphasize this. I'm not saying give up on people. Never ever give up on people. There's hope for each and every one. But engaging in, in debates that have no value can sometimes be counterproductive. We're here to humbly and wisely proclaim God's word. And see, follow Paul's example here. God's word will be preached wherever. Where there's opposition, move to somewhere else if it is becoming harmful. Okay, So kind of just an interlude. We can get sucked into frivolous debates very easily. So all I'm saying is don't get sucked into debates that actually don't uplift each other and don't proclaim Jesus' name. If you find yourself in that situation, find a place and find a group of people who are really more interested in hearing God's word. Moving on in Acts 19. So as I said, that's just a little interlude between what happened last week and what happened this. God's word will be preached somewhere, somehow, and we get to be part of that. From verse 11 in Acts 19 says the following. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons, or aprons that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now just remember what Ephesus is, what the city of Ephesus was. It was a vital port city in that time, in the province of Asia. It had the temple of the goddess Artemis. It was one of the big attractions in there. There were many powerful people, religious people, economic power, political power. And here's the what's by many regarded as the climax of Paul's public ministry. And the interesting thing, we see all of these things and all of these little incidents happening, and we'll dig into them right now. But this passage truly is about power and where power truly resides. We see Paul at the height of his powers in proclaiming Jesus. You have all these politicians in the city, powerful men and women. You have the religious leaders with their power. And you have these exorcists and magicians with their, with their own power. And interestingly, the word extraordinary miracles in the passage can also be translated as works of power being done through God, by God through Paul. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever wished that you had more power? Maybe that power for you manifests itself in the way of more money. If I had more money, I'd be more powerful, more influential. Maybe if I had a greater social standing, I'd be more powerful. Maybe if I held a political office, I'd have power. And maybe other kind of things that go through your mind thinking, if this, I would be more We don't necessarily use the term powerful. We don't necessarily say, if I had that, I'd be more powerful. But if you dig a little bit deeper, when we want all of those things, we just want a little more power, a little more control when we desire those things. And I think all of us, in one way or another, have desired a little more power, haven't we? Now, a little bit of background here with Paul preaching powerfully. Many biblical scholars believe that some traumatic event happened to Paul in Ephesus. Luke doesn't share it in his account, but many of the historic historians and many of his other writings kind of support that. If you look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 to 9, Paul says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves but God who raises the dead. Now, Ephesus was in Asia. We don't know for sure that this happened in Ephesus, but as I said, many of the scholars believe that something really traumatic happened to Paul, and he got to this point where he realized he actually had no power. All his power 
that he could possibly be exhibiting, be showing, be, be pouring out had to come from Jesus. So what happens here? Paul's going about his business, preaching the gospel and helping people see Jesus. Now I remember, if you look through Paul's ministry, his main focus was always preaching and teaching and helping people to understand who Jesus is. It's clear from this passage that he's also healing people and helping them. He's engaged in the community doing some miraculous things so that even things he touched were being collected by others and people were being healed. Don't you think that's incredible power? If a piece of cloth that someone touched was being taken to someone else and touching them and their afflictions were taken away. What incredible power. Now what happens when someone has power? Someone else wants it, isn't it? If you look at the world and you look at history, when someone has some sort of power, there's always someone else who wants to either take all of that power or at least wants some part of that power. And we have these these itinerant exorcists and these sons of Sceva. Now, interestingly, there's no official record of a high priest named Sceva. So they reckon this is some kind of hybrid pagan Jewish group that was just using ritual and magic to kind of gain some power of their own. And they want access to this power. We want some of what Paul's doing. We want to be able to, to do what he does. So what do they do? They take their little incantations or their rituals or whatever, and they just say, this plus Jesus should be equal to incredible power. They basically add it to the incantation or to the spell or to whatever you want to call it at the time, and suddenly think, this should work for them. And then what happens? Demon knows Jesus and he acknowledges Paul, but he isn't the least bit impacted by these people suddenly invoking Jesus' name. They're just saying, we do this by the name of the Jesus that Paul proclaims. So not even the Jesus that we proclaim, the Jesus that Paul proclaims. And they were completely overpowered and humiliated. Now, interesting choice of word there, they were overpowered. Whatever power they had was overcome by this demon-possessed man. And people saw this and they were terrified. People who heard about this story were afraid. They were filled with fear. So another question. When you're confronted by something or someone powerful enough to hurt or destroy you, what's your reaction? What's your response? Well, there could be two possibly. One you could probably go and try and hide under a rock somewhere and hope that they never see you or find you. Kind of fly under the radar and hope to just be unnoticed. Or alternatively, you're going to find someone who's bigger and badder and ally yourself to them. You find someone more powerful than the power that you fear. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. If you go and look at what happened, it says... This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, why do you think the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled? Here these men were calling on Jesus, but this demon overcame them. Paul, calling on the true power of God and truly exalting Jesus, was easily casting out demons, was easily exhibiting this power, was easily doing these things that were clearly very powerful. So they had to realize that the only true power that exists was and is in Jesus. 
That was a moment of awakening that they had to have. Now this is all nice and it's all background and whatever. And you might be sitting there thinking, so tell me something I don't know. We've already accepted the fact. We've already acknowledged that Jesus is the most powerful. That he is Lord. That all the power and all the majesty and everything we have comes from him. But have we really, is the question I want us to ask this morning. See, the ultimate demonstration of the power of the acceptance of the Lordship of Jesus and their true repentance was the destruction of these expensive books of magic. They didn't sell them, they destroyed them. 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, various accounts go go from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars worth of, of books that were destroyed here. But the fact is there was something of great value to them that they willingly destroyed and left behind because they realized that that was of no worth. We needed to give it all to Jesus. So I ask again, have we truly acknowledged the power of King Jesus and destroyed our own books of magic? You know, I was thinking about this, not just in preparing this, it's weird how amazing and weird how God works, because there's some things that actually had been leading me to think about this, but not specifically in the context of this passage. For me, I realized recently, as recently as this year, in fact, that I don't think I had done this completely. Radically repented, burned my books of magic, and laid it all before Jesus. I hadn't shown radical repentance. I was pretty sacrificial with money. I was pretty good at serving. I tried to make myself available to advise and counsel where people asked for that. Tried to be hospitable, have people in our homes. But there was something that I was still holding on to. See, I hadn't really left behind. For me, this is the idea of my time. See, I wasn't completely sacrificial with my time. There were still evenings or days where that was just for me. And it wasn't necessarily intentional, but it was a happy accident that I was happy not to change. kind of worked out that way, and I was happy to accept it that way. And then Zoe and I recently were working out our calendar, just where we're meeting people and, and just how our week looks like. And we realized that the week had gotten so full so quickly. There were hardly, you know, pretty much every weeknight was full and most of the weekend was full too. And an amazing thing happened. Because what I'd always feared was I'd start getting overwhelmed. I'd start feeling, man, this is just too much, this is too busy. But there was a freedom and there was a joy and, and almost an awakening in this. Because I had finally laid that, and I'm not saying it's the last thing, I'm not brave enough to say it's the last thing. But one of the big things I had radically repented of and left it, burnt it in that fire and given it up. You know, interestingly, before church, I think it was last week, Jarek and I were just having a conversation and he commented that he'd noticed something different. That he seemed, I seemed to be more in line with, more in step with the Spirit was his comment exactly. And it took me aback a little bit because I couldn't think of much that had changed dramatically. But the more and more I thought about it was, I realized that this was one of those things that had changed. 
I had given up something that I thought was important and valuable to me and sacrificed it. And it wasn't easy. It was a very scary thing to do. But something changed in me because of that. The Holy Spirit started working. I started seeing things more clearly. And as I said, it became a freedom and not a burden. It became a joy and, and energy was full. I was full of energy because I'd given up this last thing that I'd been holding on to. Something that, an area I guess, where the Holy Spirit wasn't working, where Jesus wasn't truly Lord. And now it was destroyed in that in that fire. And suddenly the world looks a bit different. Because there was a shift in worldview, a very subtle one I think, but subtle can be radical at times. You just got to change it a, little, a degree or two, and the world looked very different. So my question is, what is that thing for you this morning? You know, sometimes it can be our children. We had a, a discussion as a family early this year because Hannah wanted to do, she wanted to do dance. Okay, and this dance class would have been Mondays at four and Thursdays at four. And she was also going to be doing netball, I think, at school. That changed subsequently. But her Thursday, for example, was going to be school, which ended at two, sport after that, probably go somewhere and change, and then dance at four o'clock, get home after five, and leave for family group, which started at 6.30. That was going to be her day. And they, they have cycle tests, and they have all of these kinds of things, and homework, and all of those kinds of things to do. It would have been easy to say, okay, no, it's fine. You guys skip family group on a Thursday because ah, life is just getting too busy. Or we could try and move family group to a different day to accommodate this. Instead, we sat down as a family and said, you've got to make a decision now. And we put it before her. We were not willing to compromise. We are going to family group as a family. So if you want to do this thing, you've got to figure out how your schedule will work. And then she got to decide whether she would do dance or not. The point I'm trying to make here is it would have been easy to say, oh, shame, she's just 11 years old. We can't put all that pressure on her, so let's sacrifice something in the kingdom for something in the world. And I, I hate to say, but maybe a year ago we would have made a different decision. But that one thing that we needed to let go of, being our time and being truly putting that at Jesus' feet, has had this liberating effect on our family. Sometimes it can be our relationships. Is your marriage getting in the way of it? Are there things you're not willing to sacrifice? Because, man, this is our time. Now, marriage, I'm going to say this to you. You need to have one day at least where it is your time. okay? Because that is your most important ministry. Because if you don't have a solid foundation there, pieces are going to start coming apart elsewhere. Have a solid foundation, a solid spiritual foundation in your marriage. But if four out of seven days is spent with you and your spouse, then something's out of balance. Is it something there that you're not willing to give up? Maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe all your messages are between you and the person you're in the relationship with. challenge I give you is count how many messages you send to them versus your next best friend. How much time are you spending with them and how much time are you spending with Jesus or in your Bible? Are you willing to give that up? But if I give that up, they'll think I don't like them anymore. If the relationship's meant to be, Jesus is going to make it happen. If you put him first, the relationship will happen. I guarantee you that. Maybe it's your friendships. 
Maybe I just like spending time with this brother or that sister. And then we start doing all these fun things. We play video games, and I'm not against video games. I'm a big fan of video games. But is that all you do? Does that become the God of your relationship, of your friendship? And we say these things, these relationships, our children, all of these things, they come second or third or fourth on our priority list. But we live as if they're the most important thing. What is that thing we need to radically repent of? Sometimes it's just our opinions. We think things should be done a certain way and people should act a certain way. And when they don't, we just switch off or we we disconnect. We're not willing to subject ourselves to what is happening. And sometimes those are church things. Sometimes those things happen in the family. Sometimes a decision is made and we're not on board with it, so we're not going to fully support it. We're just going to wait for it to collapse because we told them it should be done a different way anyway. Now what happened there? I became king in that situation. I wasn't willing to subject myself to leaders who prayerfully have made a decision that they believe is best for the kingdom. It can be little things, it can be big things. How are we doing in that? Or is it our studies or our career or material possessions or social causes? The list can go on. The question I'm simply asking is, what is that thing for you? What is that thing for you? Because none of these things are bad in and of themselves. All of those things I mentioned are good things, but they can never take the place of King Jesus on the throne. If those things are on the throne, then he isn't, and our life is out of whack. Simple as that. What's worse is we sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm pursuing these things so I can do better for Jesus. When we tell ourselves that, if I work harder and I earn more money, I can be more serving and I can be more giving in the kingdom. If I pursue, I don't know, political office, I can be influential and I can help just make it easier for Christians everywhere. And then we throw ourselves into this things, having convinced ourselves that that's our way of putting Jesus first. It's not. Let's not be deceived. Unless we're throwing ourselves into what his priorities are, what he expects us to do, and where he wants us to be, we are not putting him first. He will allow us to equip ourselves in those things. If he believes we need to be more financially able, he'll put us in a position to to be there. And then we'll be put to the test, because once we're there, will we really give as much as we said? Because often the plan can change. Yeah, God, I know, I know I said if I earned more money, I would give, but, but things have changed now, and I know I said if I, if I was in this position politically, I would be able to, but, you know, the committee doesn't work quite that way, and I can't. We make excuses once we get there. Why do we make excuses once we get there? Because we were getting there for ourselves and not for Him. We were doing it for ourselves and not for Him in the first place. We need to radically repent from some of these things. Or we become like these sons of Sceva, simply adding Jesus to our selfish wishes and expecting magic to happen. So here's a challenge for you. When you when you ask God for something or you pray for something, are you truly subjecting yourself to his power? Or are you simply invoking his name in order to achieve something on your wish list? I've heard lots of worldly prayers. I'm, I'm not knocking other churches. I'm not... Knocking other 
the way others pray in other churches, but I've heard so many times people invoking his name in order to get worldly results for people. You know, in the name of Jesus we pray that she will prosper or he will be successful or all of these kinds of things. Then you're just adding Jesus' name to your personal wish list. That is not how his power works. What is the purpose of the power that God poured out through the Holy Spirit and manifested in Jesus and still lives in us through King Jesus today? It's to reconcile the world to him. That is the primary purpose of that power. Now, some of the secondary things and kind of the byproducts of that power is that we get to live these joyful lives. We get to have real, deep and honest relationships. But remember, the primary purpose of that power, the greatest power in the universe, is to reconcile us back to God. His is the most awesome power. But in order to access it fully, we have to engage in some radical repentance. We have to give up those things holding us back. Because when we really, really think about it, those things we're unwilling to give up are sucking out our joy. It's got a hold on us somewhere at the back, somewhere in the background. It's holding us back from fully experiencing King Jesus. I've given up nine out of the ten things. That one thing is what's holding you back. Give it all to Him. Radically repent. Be honest with yourself as I had to be with myself. If I was honest and from some feedback, I get good encouragement from people. I was an encouraging person. I was giving and serving and all of those things, but I knew that there was something holding me back. Most likely you couldn't see that, but I knew. And as you're sitting there this morning, I'm convinced that you know too. Will we have the courage to face that thing? It's very uncomfortable at first. Really, really uncomfortable. But if you push through and you subject yourself to King Jesus, it becomes incredibly freeing and liberating and joyful. Because the world just looks different and the world feels different. You know, one of the dreams my wife and I always had was that one of the goals of our marriage was to have our home be an inviting place. A place where people could feel comfortable, could feel safe, could feel welcomed. And where others felt like they belonged. And that couldn't and wouldn't have happened. Maybe it hasn't happened yet, I don't know. But it can't happen without sacrifice and some radical repentance. You've got to allow people into your space as if it's their own space. You've got to sacrifice some of your, your money, probably all of your food depending on who's coming. <laughs> and chunks of your time and energy. But you know what happens when you experience that? It's an incredible joy. There's a closeness. There's a love. There's a unity. There's a power in it that can't happen without some sacrifice. Can't happen without some repentance. You know, in Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, we read this. All says, But he said to me, he's talking about the thorn in his flesh, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. See, even Paul had to realize that he had to give up all of those things that made him safe or powerful or gave him the social standing or things that made him feel 
seem honored in the eyes of the world. He had to give up all of those things, become weak, so that in him Jesus could be strong. Now along with identifying these things in our own lives, that thing that we need to radically repent of, part of that process should be laying it before a brother or sister that we trust. Because sometimes it's easy telling the ugly stuff to ourselves, isn't it? We're admitting it to ourselves or telling it to God in prayer. But when it really stops holding, having a hold on you is when you lay it before another brother or sister. The brutal, ugly truth. And I'm not saying stand up here and tell it to everybody. Be wise in how you do that. Not everybody's equipped to deal with it. Not everybody's equipped to give you the right advice about it. Not everybody is in the space yet where you are safe telling them that. I'm not saying we don't trust one another, but I'm saying just be wise. Build those relationships. Deepen your relationship and then just lay it all on the table. Because when all that ugly stuff comes out, a healing process can start. Repentance can start. We can face this thing head on and we can experience that incredible power, that healing power, not just for us, but for those we encounter. You know, Paul had all these things for which he could be honored. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. Philippians 3 verse 5 to 6 tells us, Paul had all of these things going for him, but in the end he realized those things counted for nothing. Only true power in this universe is King Jesus. We can access that power in order to change our lives and the lives of those we encounter. So the tough question I want to challenge myself and all of us with is this. Am I merely adding Jesus' name to my list of wishes? Or am I truly, radically repenting of those things, stopping him from using me powerfully? Is he just someone I use to fix my life? Or am I accessing that power to partner with him on this incredible mission, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to live a powerful life, maybe not in the way the world sees power, but in the only way that truly matters? I want you to take a moment to imagine this family with all of us having done that. All of us having thrown away that one thing. Maybe you feel like for you there's more than one thing. Pick one thing. The one thing you know has the biggest hold on you. And having him work powerfully in us. Imagine what we would look like. Imagine what your life would look like. Honestly, the hope of that and the thought of that excites me like few other things do. Because when we're all in step with the Holy Spirit, when we're all infused and accessing the power of King Jesus for His glory and not for ours, we're going to have this incredible impact. We're going to have these amazing marriages that, that the world's in awe of. We're going to have relationships and friendships that people yearn for. We're going to have worship and, and fellowship and service that looks like nothing else. And we'll be so just joyful for it that we won't even think how awesome I am, not for one second. All we'll be thinking is how amazing and how powerful He is. Church, there's incredible power in this world. There's visible power, but there's a greater power at work in the universe. 
the greatest power at work in the universe. So the question I'm begging you, in fact, to ask yourself is, what's holding you back from accessing that power for his glory and truly, truly changing the world? Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you just that that you are Lord, you are King. You're also a friend and, and one who loves us deeply, but you are ultimately the most powerful person in the entire universe. I pray that we can truly see that deep in our hearts. We understand who you are. We understand who it is we proclaim to serve, but, but not just proclaim to serve you, serve you truly with all our hearts, leaving behind all those things that, that we selfishly cling on to for ourselves. Thank you that you reveal that in us. I pray for, for myself and all of us to have the courage to truly see those things, to give up those things, to overcome those things, and to truly just throw ourselves into your mission. You, Holy Spirit, will guide us, and that we'll have the, the discernment, the wisdom, and the, the courage and the strength to follow through with, with where you are guiding us. Ultimately, you guide us to proclaim King Jesus, to make him known. I pray that as a family we'll, we'll never get down on ourselves because these things are, are in our lives, but we have this hope in you, King Jesus. The hope that we can overcome them, hope that we can, by sharing this with each other, by being honest, by being radically repentant in our lives, we can have that joy, we can have that weight lifted off our shoulders, and we can truly, truly exalt you. I pray that through all of this, your name is glorified, and that you will be honored and praised. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.